0: Case number 20-5382. Earthworks et al. at Balance versus United States Department of the Interior et al. Mr. Flynn for the Balance, Mr. Toth for the appellees, Ms. Dawson for the interveners
1: Counsel, um, I, I do not should I be seeing a counsel at this point? There we are. Okay. Okay. Um, Good morning, Council. Uh, we apologize for the remote arrangements, but thank you for your flexibility in making this work. Uh, Mr. Flynn, whenever you're ready.
2: Uh, good morning, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the Court. I'm Roger Flynn, a Council for Plant, uh, Appellant Earthworks. Uh, for, with the Court's permission, I'd like to reserve about five minutes or so, uh, for rebuttal. Uh, just at the outset, I'd like to thank the clerk's office for arranging this on the fly uh, in the snowstorm from our hotel room here in uh, Washington. So I really appreciate their 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 awesome work this morning. Uh, I would first like to uh, discuss how we got here and the fundamental issue of how the Interior Department's complete reversal of its existing millside policy, which existed for years when it issued the 2003 rule, was not a logical outgrowth of the 1999 proposed rule when that proposed rule did not mention at all the, poss- the remote possibility that it, the agency would overturn its existing policy set by the secretary of interior that policy in 1997 and in the 99 proposed rule was binding immediately binding on all agency offices in the field congress stayed that essentially for two years uh, out of fairness, and they said they, it couldn't be applied for mining plans that were in the works at the time, they did not overrule it, they did not abrogate it, and they left it in place for the next three or four years. Then, We're, years we're, later, talking,
1: we're talking about a distinct interpretive question, pretty straightforward, about the meaning of the words on the page of 30 U.S.C. 42, which either requires a one to one correspondence of mill sites to mines, or requires a five acre total, or or doesn't require either. And and that's what the dispute is about. Um different people took different positions. I mean, you think it's wasn't foreseeable that they would take position one way or the other on that seemingly unitary question
2: well i think the uh, the case law that we cited from from this circuit talks about when the agency the, the public not uh plaintiffs represented by counsel but the public has to have an idea that the agency was uh about to reverse itself and give an opportunity to comment upon that potential reversal well, in that's exactly 99 what
3: happened. that's i mean they want to put out the the original proposal, they took public comment. Apparently, the comments opposing the, the uh, proposal uh, were persuasive, and so they withdrew the proposal.
2: Well, if we were, if the public had been given the opportunity to comment upon a potential reversal, we would have done so.
3: But you mean reversal? You mean, you mean decision not to go forward with the proposal?
2: Well the proposal in nineteen ninety nine was just to codify the existing policy set by the Secretary in nineteen ninety seven. That was the policy. The agency argues on standing, on the APA and on NEPA that all they did in oh three was go back to the status quo pre nineteen ninety seven. The status quo Isn't that always an
0: option? Isn't that always an option? You've got a rulemaking, they put out the proposal and they decide not to do it. That's a logical outgrowth.
2: Well, you know, interestingly, the rule that was there uh, prior to, well, 1997 in, in the regulations, in the CFR, it was at that time called 43 CFR 3844. That had nothing about limits on mill sites, either pro or con. So there was no inclination. Um, Essentially, as we pointed out in the case law, the public shouldn't have to divine the secretary's thinking that it would come up with the proposal that was exactly opposite of what was on the books,
3: the was, general was, counsel was... gave an opinion in ninety seven right and then the secretary proposed to adopt that through c f r and then decided not to do so why is this- why is the general counsel's opinion any more binding than than well why is it binding at all
2: uh, it was uh... Your Honor, it was not just the uh, solicitor of the Interior Department, the General Counsel, but that at the bottom of it, it was signed, uh, co-signed, so to speak, by the Secretary of Interior, Secretary Babbitt. So when the Secretary signs that, it becomes a directive on the entire Interior Department. No agency, could, no okay. agency okay. office in the field could okay. violate All right.
3: that. All right. So did, what do we have by way of instances, I don't think you showed us any, in which the Department acting on that interpretation in the co-signed opinion letter, uh, denied applications.
2: Uh, The district court made a big uh, point about that. But what was happening is for the first two years, 97 to 99, roughly, uh, Congress stepped in and said, well, you can't apply that.
3: Then then there was a gap period when there was no um, appropriation bar.
2: Right. There was about four years or so there, three or four so any, years. Any um,
3: examples there of applying the policy?
2: Well, no, because the mining industry knew that it would be illegal. So the mining industry didn't apply for excess mill sites or patents. There was a moratorium, but many were grandfathered in. Um, you know, So if the speed limit is 55 and no one goes over 55, that doesn't mean there's not a speed limit. So the industry knew that anything they submitted within those three or four years uh, would be illegal and would be instantly denied by the Interior Department. So the fact that no mines were denied or limited based on the 97 Secretarial Opinion doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It was it was binding. And uh, what, that what was
1: what was discussion. it?
2: What, what me, next,
3: How many? I'm sorry, your applications have been received since well to date.
2: Uh, well, uh, none since. Uh, how many mining projects have been submitted since 2003? Hundreds or dozens, basically. Uh, but in that gap, I think you were focusing on Judge Ginsburg. That three or four year gap, right. there were none because it would have a no mining company would submit something knowing it would be denied by the Interior Department. Okay, Wait, can I, I ask I got you
3: something? You right, did I they... got you right. You just said that once the um, department switched its position, they did receive a raft of applications for additional locations is that correct
2: yeah well, that's what's going on right now we pointed yeah. out one mine mm-hmm. in arizona submitted hundreds of millsite claims that's what they're doing out in the field based on the O three. 3 uh, but when the O three 3 rule came in we had no idea they were about to switch positions
0: no idea what i ask you a question yes Judge, the 2003 Judge Jean, yes. rule says this is at ja 817 during fiscal year two thousand two, claimants recorded fifteen thousand four hundred seven new mining claims and sites. So how is that consistent with there were none?
2: Oh uh you can file mining claims. I, I thought the question from Judge Ginsburg was did anyone propose mining operations on the So they uh, filed claims?
0: claims without without asking for mill sites. There were fifteen thousand with no mill sites?
2: That's my understanding. I I they didn't provide, you know, all the, the list of those claims. Um, but since uh, 2003, they've been approving operations with uh, the additional uh, mill sites. But during that window of three or four years, Congress stated for a couple of years uh, there was there was none, as far as I know. Um, and so that's the issue. The question is, in 03, what was the status quo? so they're saying we didn't have to really do look at any environmental impacts. We didn't have to notify the public because all we were doing was going back to the status quo. But the status quo was the secretarial directive from 97. And so that's all we had to go on. We didn't know if the agency was going to reverse it. We didn't know what
3: the- The secretarial directive was not the product of any rulemaking, was it?
2: No, uh, secretarial directors are are not rulemaking. They're uh, binding upon the agency out in the field. And uh, as so what happened here, to
3: field, directions of the field offices, as it were.
2: Yes, sir. And then in '99, they proposed to, with slight modification, codify that in the regulation. And but there was no indication, nothing in the in the regulatory, the preamble or the notice or anything, saying, please comment on us the, uh, reversing this. Why would the Secretary's office in 1999 propose or even let the public think? that it was going to reverse itself. It only reversed itself when the new administration came in in 01, and then only after two more years. And so there's this black hole for four years. We didn't know anything. We had no idea to comment. They, they did that environmental assessment. There was no public notice. We didn't even know they were doing it,
0: but they let could alone have, doing the could ruling. Could if the secretary have just reversed that directive, the new secretary, and you would have had no notice and comment either? They could just find a new... It. I'm saying putting aside the rulemaking, they had a policy on the books that was signed by Bruce Babbitt, the former secretary. Couldn't the new secretary just reverse that, sign a new well, directive? That's not a policy anymore. And you would have had no notice and comment on that.
2: Well, that's what happened in the, uh, the way the timeline worked. In October of '03, the solicitor and the secretary, the new secretary, Gail Norton, uh, issued the 03 opinion and then, which reversed the ninety seven opinion from the secretary, and then a few days later, the environmental assessment came out again, we didn't know they were working on it, which normally they have to let the public at least comment sometimes and then about uh ten days, two weeks later, out comes the 03 rule, which completely reversed everything. It was one, two, three, out of the blue, we had no idea
1: okay, so happening. so the so the actual sequence of events might Come close to Judge Pan's hypothetical question, but what's the answer to that? So Secretary Norton writes and writes a memo saying we're going back to the pre 97 understanding or, you know, I know that might be contested the understanding that, um, met the many, many people who were complaining about the 97 order were um, advocating for. Right, which is right, what, no one to one and no five acre aggregate limit.
2: Right, I mean, what, that uh, was happen, was
1: the debate for years.
2: Uh, right, but under the APA process, it's not just uh, council for the industry or council for uh, Earthworks and the other conservation uh, groups. Uh, there has to be public notice. It and so, what should not, happen?
1: Not not for an interpretive rule. There wasn't. No, for the
2: Right. No, exactly. We're talking about the rulemaking in 03, the the final rule. That is what was not a logical outgrowth of the proposed rule. And so what we ask on remand, and I see I'm I'm cutting into my rebuttal time, um, but uh, on remand that they do a rulemaking and have public notice and actually look at the environmental impact of reversing its position, which there is they didn't do any environmental review, zero. Um, so i I have about uh three more minutes say uh, for rebuttal yeah, why don't you, the,
1: what, the you wanna you want to get to the merits a little bit So, frankly i 'm more interested in that than
2: right okay yeah, yeah, yes right. your honor um, um, section uh, basically, the agency is manufacturing an ambiguity here about how many mill sites you get mining law the plain language is very clear mill sites <laughs> are tied to the development of the load claim and you know, if it, even if you could think that there was an ambiguity under Chevron, step two, the industry, I mean, agencies always want to go to Chevron, step two, saying there's an ambiguity. But as we pointed out, under public land law, since the 1800s, the Supreme Court time and time again says, if there is an ambiguity, and let's just assume there is, we say, no, the, the commentary for 100 years, including that to Congress, said there is no ambiguity, you're limited on mill sites. But even if there is an ambiguity, that is ruled in favor, presumed, interpreted in favor of the government in limiting the grant. (laughs) What's
0: your best best argument for why your reading is unambiguous? Because I can see that you have a strong reading of this statute. But what's your best argument for why it's unambiguously correct?
2: Right. Well, we look, I mean, history matters in this case. And we look at the original language. And what was going on in 1872 the opinion talks about modern mining and we need more acres yes we the mining industry needs thousands of acres of mill site claims but in 1872 they didn't if you look at all the analysis from the interior department early decisions through the commentary into the 1960s and 70s everybody knew that you back in 1872 you didn't need much land there wasn't big waste dumps there wasn't big processing you only the 20 acres for the mining claim and then for each 20 acres, you got five acres of the site. That was more than enough. Congress did not contemplate at all that there would, they needed all these acres. So, so, what
0: if what if we agree with you? Maybe the 1872 Congress intended it to work that way, but what they wrote in the statute doesn't unambiguously say that. I think the only way you win is if your reading is unambiguously correct
2: right and that's right I think yeah, then you go as uh, all the briefs said you go to the tools of statu- standard tools of statutory construction and in and, and all those the railroad cases and into the 20th century uh, the statutory tool of construction was any ambiguities when you grant when the feds are granting away public resources to private entities mining companies railroad companies back and then any ambiguity even if there is one, is resolved in favor of limiting the grant. And the district court didn't talk about that. It's never, in, the 97 opinion mentioned that. Nobody else does. Everyone just seems to have forgotten that that is a primary tool of statutory construction when you have ambiguities. Uh, and so even if you get to step step two, you really don't, because under step one, uh, Judge Cassis, I think your uh, recent decision in the employer's case basically said, you look to statutory tools to determine ambiguity. And uh, in that case, you limit the grant, not expand the grant. And that's the problem here.
1: Is your preferred position one one mill site per mining site or total of five acres per one mining site?
2: Uh, I think the 1999 proposed rule... Uh, clarified a little the, uh, the the 97 opinion and said, because mining companies always want to maximize their mining claim to go up to the full 20 acres, and therefore you got five acres for the 20. Now, they argue that, well, the courts have allowed people to file multiple mining claims. That's fine. We agree with that. So every time you file a new mining claim, another 20 acres, you get another five. Uh, you get three 20 acres, you get 15 acres. And that's the way it was set up back in 1872, and that was the rule for decades.
1: So what what sense does your rule make if the related rules and practices are that the mining company can file, can make as many claims and seek as many patents as it wants, and it can subdivide those claims as much as it wants?
2: Oh yeah, so, that's the uh oh, I'm sorry,
1: Your Honor.
4: No, I mean I just
1: you know, if uh, if the number and configuration of the mining claims is unlimited, just seems like what what are we fighting over here?
2: Well that's the uh, the minuscule mine claim theory, which uh the district court rejected sure. as uh, uh, as unpersuasive. And so essentially mining companies always want to maximize their claim. The 1872, you couldn't file a claim of a, a few feet. That you would have been laughed at at the saloon that night. So everyone wanted to maximize their claim. In 18, from 1866 to 1872, they actually expanded. They increased the amount of land. Uh, you could follow along the Vayner load. It was all underground mining at that time. And so you would follow along the or load. Uh, up to 1,500 feet by 600 feet. And then you can go, if, if you found more, okay, I'll file another claim and get more. Sure, get more this sure.
1: But, but if the, you know, they're mining the, I don't know, sorry for the mixed metaphor, but if they're going after the low-hanging fruit in, at that time and no one needs the five-acre limit is not really a constraint, the that practice doesn't really tell us one way or the other whether they can, uh, w- what happens if they need more area for the millstone.
2: Uh, right, Ron. I think one of the issues, uh, this, I think it was in the briefing, in both this, opinions actually, recognized that this is not the end of the world for the mining industry, that it's going to shut down open pit mining or anything. Uh, and I've, I've been personally involved in cases where you do a land exchange. So let's say you get 100 acres from mill sites, but you need 1,000. Uh-oh, the mine is dead? No, for so that extra 900 mining companies do land exchange, they can do sales. Uh, Congress has stepped in and ordered land exchanges. Uh, and so there are many ways for mining companies to operate profitably in the West. The key is they wouldn't have a statutory right, because when you have a statutory right to dump thousands of acres of mine waste, that cuts out all the other public uses. It eliminates the federal discretion. So all we're really asking for when you take all the, the legal ease out of this is that uh, under the law, there are competing uses on public lands. And so the statutory rights of the mining law are limited. You get some, but you don't get this essentially thousands of acres. And therefore, the Interior and the Forest Service uh, agencies can then have the discretion whether to allow the extra waste dump. Uh, but not as a statutory right. That's the issue. It's a property right under the Fifth Amendment that the industry wants here. If the mining law doesn't give it to them and they should be, they should, the, uh, the agency's discretion for these extra thousands of acres, we think, uh, has been stripped away by the 03 rule. That's the problem. It's it stripped it away with no public notice and no environmental review if, when you boil it all
0: down. Is not your strongest argument here that is that structurally your rule, your reading is the one that makes the most sense or maybe the only one that makes sense because I think everybody agrees that the mill sites are linked to a mining claim and the mining claim is limited in size. The mining claim is either 1,500 by 600 feet for a load claim or it's 20 acres for a placer claim. And so structurally, I think your argument would be it cannot be that they limited the mining claim but said the mill site that's attached to it can be infinity as long as it's used for mining and, and mill site purposes. The size of the mining claim is limited. This provision limits the size of the mill site to five acres. And if you read it the other way, that means land used for mill sites is up to infinity as long as it's used for mining and mill site purposes. And structurally, you, that's not the way you can read this statute. That's right. That's right.
2: I mean, basically, uh, it's uh, as long as you reasonably relate it to mining, that's the phrase you can have. I mean, out in the West, we have mill sites covering thousands and thousands of acres, double, triple, quadruple the lands in the mine pit. That's not how the mining law was set up. The actual and this showed up in the in the 1969, 70 congressional report, the 1990s, uh, 1979 congressional report. They all said you got 20 acres for the mine. Claim, and you have more, you can get more, and you get five acres from mill sites, 20 to 5, 40 to 10, 60 to 15, on and on. That's the way the law was set up. They weren't giving unlimited mill site acres in 1872. It didn't cross anyone's mind. You read all the uh, the professors, the Interior Department decisions, the industry themselves for decades says we have a problem. We've got to go to Congress and change this. Congress, for whatever reason, did not change it, even though they were told they needed to change that. So the bottom line is the agency did here by regulation what Congress chose not to do. And that, I think we can all agree, is not what an agency can do. They do not have the power to remake the law unless Congress said they could. And that's a problem.
3: Before the Leshy opinion, the department was operating on what you say is the mistaken reading. And I think they were doing so for 50 years. Is that correct?
2: Uh, roughly since World War II, the BLM in its current form was constituted right after World War II. And so, as as the thing what happened after World War II, the mines got big. No longer there's very few underground mines anymore. These mines are now covering eight, ten thousand acres. Most of that being waste dump and, and chemical processing. And so, yes, for the uh, for those decades between World War II and the 90s, uh, they were doing that. And then the Secretary of Interior in 1993 came in and said, "Wait a minute, this." It violates the mining law. So then they had their staff. They had they looked at it for a number of years, and then they came out and said in '97, all of that stuff was happening in Idaho and Nevada out in the field. We didn't approve that. That's not what's going on here, um, or it's illegally going on.
3: They did approve it.
2: Out in the field.
3: Yeah, so that was the practice for 50
2: years. That was the practice. And I think, Your Honor, uh, that's their basic argument. Hey, we were doing this for 50 years. It makes it legal. I think the Supreme Court got it right a few years ago in the McGirt versus Oklahoma case, you know, the uh, the Cherokee rights there in in Oklahoma, where they said, you know, the fact that the agency got it wrong in that case for over 100 years, the fact that they got it wrong here out in the field, uh, that doesn't make it legal. I, I think we can all agree on that. It's the law so- that matters, the language and the history.
0: Even if that's true, I think the issue here is about ambiguity, because if it's ambiguous then then we defer to the agency and they've they've ruled a different way, and so you have to I think convince us that you are unambiguously correct, and even if you have the better reading of the law, why isn't it ambiguous because it doesn't say how many mill sites you're allowed to have
2: right well, we know the uh, Chevron step 2 is up tomorrow at the Supreme Court but under today Chevron still applies and mm-hmm. uh we say that uh, as I mentioned before uh a traditional all all the parties agree that when you interpret an ambiguity is there an ambiguity here what's this you look to traditional tools and those two, two traditional tools here is history 1872 matters not 1972 not 2003 or today and any ambiguity On statutory construction, the Supreme Court has said time after time, now there's, you know, the modern cases don't, this doesn't pop up too often, but that doesn't mean the Supreme Court was wrong in case after case. Ambiguities must be resolved in limiting the grant. And it says one of the arguments on the other side is, well, Congress was silent on the number they didn't really mention this on the number of mill sites you can get. You're saying that that
0: canon that canon of construction makes it unambiguous.
2: It, any ambiguity is is done in favor of limiting the grant. So you put the the uh, the tool construction that 1872 language and congressional intent and what was going on in the no. West I understand, at the time, but are you saying yeah.
0: that it eliminates ambiguity? Like, say, we think that under step one, it's ambiguous because it doesn't say the number of mill sites. You're saying the ambiguity is. Eliminated because there's a candidate of construction that favors, I guess, land um, being assigned to the government and not to other parties.
2: In a way, to interpret and to uh, determine whether it's ambiguous, (laughs) there is an ambiguity. You go to uh, what was, um, you know, you you limit the grant. And it also in those those Supreme Court, mostly the old railroad cases, when the railroads were fighting the government, who got the grant, etc. You go to... um, It must be clear and concise language to create that ambiguity. I mean, the the limiting the grant must have clear and concise statutory language. There is none here that says you could have as much land as you want or as you need. And so the uh, the statutory construction tools, 1872, there's no way that mining companies were needing all this. land. they have one example in a history book from Nevada never looked at, no evidence, no details or anything. Everybody says you didn't need that, all that land in 1872. And so therefore, we don't think you get to Chevron step two. And even if you do, the ambiguity is resolved in favor of limiting the grant. They did the exact opposite. The 97 opinion recognized that. I mean, talking, there was the old uh, uh, Wilderness Society versus Morton case on the Alaska pipeline. The, The pipeline companies wanted an expanded grant. And the D.C. Circuit on banc said, "We can't just give you more land because you need it. You have got to go back to Congress and do it." And that's what everyone said for decades. You want what? more land under Section 42? Go to Congress. You just can't do it by rule.
3: And then comes to Chevron in 1984, and there's no suggestion that it's somehow limited by this pre-existing principle dealing with land grants. Uh, it Sounds to me like a the, like a the the, the statutory norm. We used to have, which is that um, uh, uh, statutes and derogation of the common law are to be construed narrowly. Now that was never expressly overruled. We just gravitated later to Chevron instead.
2: Right. Well, well, Chevron. I say we're talking Chevron step two here again. We think uh, look at 1872. It's clear that uh, they didn't get all this land, and you didn't need you didn't get it in 1872. But let's just talk about the ambiguity. Uh, We don't think that the uh, the Presumption uh, falls after uh, goes away after Chevron. There was actually a case. What was that? I think it was 2002. The Bedrock case, B-E-D-R-O-C case. It wasn't in the briefs, uh, but I remember it where uh, it was post Chevron, and they and uh, they said the uh, those presumptions didn't apply because it was it was clear that it wasn't or it was ambiguous. Here, it's certainly not clear that it's ambiguous. We think it's the statutory language is clear from Chevron step one. Agencies always wanna have the case turned into step two and argue it's ambiguous. And then uh, basically they get to determine the law, not your honors. But I, I think we all agree that as from going back to Chief Justice Marshall, the courts say what the law is. And the law in 1872 was not this carte blanche, non-mineral land. I mean, there was, as we pointed out, there's a lot of competition fierce competition for non-mineral land they wouldn't have just given it all to the mining companies there goes the ranchers there goes the railroads there goes the farms
1: can you point me to the specific statutory text that you think at least ambiguously supports your position because you know your brief invokes the word such and i just don't see that at all
2: well, Your Honor, that's what the, uh, we, we agree with the 97 opinion and it, it uh, it ties every mill site claim, uh, to, uh, the mining of Vayner okay. Road. And I, and your, I think your, the-
1: your best, your best argument is, is the one Judge Pan articulated, which, you know, at, at most is a structural argument. To me, it feels a little bit more like, um I don't want to sound pejorative. It sounds like a purpose sort of argument a harmonization argument that you have to read into the statute a limitation that's not there because if you don't, the five acre limit just doesn't seem to make any sense that's that's your position
2: but why do they put a limit on five acres? Is because they, there was other. There's other non-mineral land. There's other things going on. Uh, mining law.
1: Well, one first- one one answer to that might be that when the you know there there are independent requirements on the, the mill siting land, right? It has to be non-mineral. It has to be not contiguous. It has to be used to support the mining. That. They're just going to assess the fitness or the permissibility of the mill site site on a five acre basis. That's the level of generality at which they're going to figure out whether the mill site land can be used for that purpose. And, and that doesn't seem, you know, if, if your argument is we have to read in a limitation to, to make other text not surplusage seems like that's enough to make the statute work.
2: Well, that's not the situation. Like a broken record, but and I apologize. But you know, in 1872, that wasn't the case. The only other time um, this was discussed in the briefing that Congress ever looked at this was in 1960. The original 1872 language was just for load claims, the underground, you know, the rock in place as they call it. Class mines are more of the surface mines. Along streams and things like that. I'll and
1: spl- so I'll spot you I'll swatch you that, but it just feels a little bit like a classic question of Fourth Amendment and wiretaps, right? The framers never thought about wiretaps, but um the best you can do is apply the words of the law to a new situation and the words of the the words of this law don't seem to foreclose multiple mills um claims so
0: so i i see a textual reading of this which was not raised in the briefs um that would support earthworks position um i don't think know if this is unambiguous or not but if you read such so the the, the statute says we're non-mineral land not contiguous to the vein or load is user-occupied for mining or milling purposes, such non-adjacent surface. If you read such, to refer to all of the non-mineral land that's not contiguous and used for mining or milling purposes, such meaning all of it, then such land shall not exceed five acres. So I, I do see a textual reading that would support your approach. It's not the one that you raised. That's one way. If you were to read such as referring to all of the non-mineral land that's not contiguous that we're going to use for mining or milling purposes, all the mill site land, then that such that mill site land can't exceed five acres. There would be a textual basis for what you're saying. Um, I don't uh, know if yes, that's you're... unambiguous because you can also read it as this doesn't say you can't have more than one mill site. But I I do see a textual argument um,
2: right. in your favor. I would agree. I think it is tied to the such. In fact, in the government's answer brief, they talked about they admitted there was a link between mill sites and the uh, the mining of the vein or load. But then they pointed out that there was this other provision for an independent mill site uh, that somehow proves their point. But that that never came up in the order. It never came up in the district court. Never came up in the briefing until uh, you showed up. And actually, the 19, the two thousand three opinion said that you only got one independent mill site. The uh, language. Uh, in the opinion at page thirty one says that in the eighteen ninety one HECBA consolidated mine decision it said, quote, the owner of a quartz mill or reduction works, those are the independent mill sites, they locate only one five acre independent mill site under the mill site provision. They only got one.
0: So whether it's Mr. Flynn, or I, I, I think we're just trying to zero in on the statutory language. Okay. Okay. And, well and, that was the Dutch Cass is saying that he textually, like, what is the support for your argument? That's what we're trying to zero in on right now. Right.
1: right. I read the such as just shorthand for, you're, you're talking about land out there. It's just, right, whatever the land is, before we talk about subdividing it or not, it has to be non-mineral. It has to be not contiguous. And it has to be used or occupied by the proprietor for milling or mining purposes, not contiguous to that. That's the land we're talking about. It's introduced in a long, um, uh, introductory clause that runs, I don't know, 30 words or something. And then the such is just shorthand for all the land that meets all those descriptors, the, the land yeah. that meets all the, right? Uh that's
2: correct. And I think Judge Finn, that's that's where you were going. And so, so I, I think how much- the,
0: the, the the possible distinction is reading such as any non-mineral land that's non-contiguous and used for mining purposes or all of the non-mineral land that is used or occupied. Because if you say right. any, then that would allow multiple mill sites, correct? But if you say all of the non-mineral land that's used or occupied for whatever, non-contiguous and used or occupied for non-milling. and and that such land has to be five acres, then that would limit all of it to five acres. So I think there there could be ambiguity in such because even if you rely on such, such can mean any such land or all of such land. Well,
3: you
2: know, one of the... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Judge
3: Ginsburg. I agree, I guess. I mean, I could not frankly make sense of the argument in the way that Judge Pan has done, although I see her point. But when we go on to say, but no location, uh, such non-adjacent land shall exceed five acres, introducing the term location here, which I understand from your brief is essentially a synonym for stake.
2: Uh, uh, claiming, staking, staking your claim, yes.
3: That, um, that there's no limit on locations.
2: Oh, well, this came up, uh, it's a very good point. This it, it came up a lot in the briefing because you could have those early cases said, you got five acres maximum of mill site land to support the mining of the vein or load. Uh, in fact, the very uh, narrow reading is that you only got five acres total. That's what we're, some we're of trying those are.
3: Other... We're trying to limit this inquiry to the statute itself it's like, <laughs> in order to, to see whether we can find your, argu- your argument in the statute, okay? So don't tell me about history the minute I mention the statute.
2: Okay. Uh, uh, fair enough, uh, Judge Gunsburg. Um, the uh, So a lot of the briefing talked about you could have multiple mill sites to support every load, um, but the total had to be five. So you could have uh, one two-acre mill site. Yeah, five acres. One two-acre and one three-acre. Well, how would that happen? Why wouldn't so, you put them five?
5: in five? Well, so in the the argument, in the West,
0: you might have to split them up. On All the right. location clause, wouldn't the argument be that you're saying no location? Of such adjacent land. So if such is read as any, then it would allow multiple mill sites. But if such is read as the, all of it. So location of all of the non-mineral land that you're using for for a mill site is limited to five acres. So I think that the ambiguity is in such, whether it's read as such equals any such land or the land, all of the land. And I think that,
3: well, I don't, that location changes that ambiguity. Am I correct, uh, Judge Pan, in, in saying that this is the point you just made is one that was not the one made in the briefs that you you're correct, you're sorry. not in the
0: briefs, not in the
3: briefs. Right. Now, the briefs <laughs> well, uh, well, without a viable reading on behalf of the appellants here.
2: Uh, well, Your Honor, I would respectfully say that when we focused on such and, and we focused on the five acres total you got a total location or claiming of five acres. I think that gets to where you're going there, Judge Pan. Uh, you know, the early cases allowed you to file more than one mill site. It's just it could, the total had to be five acres max for the mining of every ore body or vein or load as it's called in the statute. And so that, that was the limit there. And what language would they have used that The other side argues, well, they should have said, you only get one, period. Well, that wasn't what Congress was drafting. They were basically said, you got five acres of location, which is the claim. One, two acre, one, three acre, it doesn't matter. It's five. And that's what the 97 opinion said. So, again, if we don't think it's ambiguous, it's I mean, what was going on for a hundred and some odd years? Everybody that looked at this, there were no environmentalists back then or environmental groups, every, industry lawyers, law professors, uh, reports to Congress all said, the interpretation that we're arguing, it wasn't until modern mining got real big and needed this, where the agency said, "Okay, well, we're just going to give them patents to all these lands. We're going to not pay attention to this." Mr. Let's Flynn, make it legal. Yeah,
0: I, I think I think the bottom line is, even if you have the best reading of the statute, I think you need to have an unambiguously <laughs> correct reading of the statute, and I don't know if we're there.
2: Well, uh, respectfully, how I mean that would just ignore what the Supreme Court has been saying since the 1880s and 90s ambiguities must be interpreted to limit the grant so even if i won't concede it but uh for, the, for today if it's uh, if there is some ambiguity that it's to li- any ambiguity is interpreted to limit the grant we just can't throw out that supreme court unbroken line of precedent case after case you, you have to interpret the ambiguity again so i don't know how they get around that uh the Supreme Court has said, when you're dealing with public resources, you err on the side of the public resource, not giving it away. And that's what the 03 rule does. It just gives away thousands of acres,
0: a property right, a Fifth Amendment property right. You raised that presumption argument in your reply brief, correct?
2: Uh, Yeah, we were responding to the Chevron argument. We raised it to the district court. District court Mm -hmm. didn't mention it. And so, uh, as you know, the government and the industry argues up to Chevron. Uh, Everything's ambiguous. That's what they argue all the time. And so Mm -hmm. we're saying that doesn't apply in this case. Uh, Things can be ambiguous, you know, maybe uh, for the sake of argument, but when you actually interpret it, you interpret the such. If this was a case in 1890, which the same facts, the Supreme Court would say, oh yeah, you don't get as much as that. The presumption is in favor of limiting the grant. And so they turned that on its head in 2003 and said, no, it's ambiguous, so we will give them thousands of acres uh, basically for $5 an acre. <laughs> the price hasn't changed, even though the moratorium that has to be renewed every year in Congress. So who knows what the next Congress will do with this. Uh, and so we think uh, it's not ambiguous. There's such ties to it. It's the total land. And uh, I think I thought we made that point, particularly quoting the reports to Congress, the report to Congress had, a. you probably saw that diagram that said the current law is you got one mill site for the big mine claim block. And they said, that's not going to work for the mining industry anymore. We've got to, and what was the solution? Go to Congress and get a big block of mill sites to go with your big block of mining claims with the ore body. That is going to help the mining industry. Congress, you should do that. But they didn't. And, And so, uh, It's not me. It's not even the 97 opinion from the secretary that says this. It was said for 100 years after the mining law, that's the way the law works. They're just ignoring that. And they say, well, that's just a report to Congress. There was no details. There was law review articles written, the uh, law review article, Twitty and Sweetwright uh, report. They all said, "Uh, we got to change the mining law because they don't get all this. We take
1: your your point about later sources. Judge Pan, any other questions? No, thank you. Judge Ginsburg? No, thank you. Okay. Um, okay that, uh, thank you very much, Your Honor. Of, <laughs> we will, <laughs> appreciate we will that. give you rebuttal time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, we'll hear from uh, DOJ. Mr. Toth?
5: May it please the Court, Brian Toth from the Department of Justice representing the Federal Defendants at the regulation at issue in this case has been supported and defended in litigation by agencies under four different presidential administrations. As a threshold matter, uh, I understand the court. Uh, is... I'm sorry.
0: Are you saying that, that, that there's legal challenge to your interpretation before? Is there a case that
5: I'm not aware of? You said no, defended
0: this... in court four times?
5: N- no, the, the, this litigation has continued since 2009. Um, and oh, you mean the, all in this litigation? Correct. Correct. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. It's been—you know—this has not been a case that the government has compromised under any of those administrations. Settled, um, despite the long-running status of the uh, of the suit. Um, so this is a—it's it, interesting to hear um, plaintiffs arguing about the the lack of notice that they received over 20 years ago. Um, just on that preliminary issue, I would direct the court to the comments that they actually submitted on the um, the proposed rule they're in the joint appendix beginning at page seven oh eight you'll see um, you know the issue is fairly joined here they they received sufficient notice um, as a threshold matter sort of backing up I realize this is not a uh, anything the court asked um, my friend on the other side questions about but uh, as a threshold matter the plaintiffs have failed to demonstrate uh, that at the time of the suit and the, at the time of their summary judgment motions that they had article 3 standing to bring their challenges against this reg- against this regulation in the facial context they do so here the the case that i would point the court to as instructive here is the supreme court's decision in the summers versus earth island institute case uh, also a challenge to regulations. Um, And in that case, the plaintiffs um, challenged the regulations, but they also challenged a site-specific project applying the regulations. The Supreme Court held that because uh, the the agencies had settled the site-specific challenge with the project, uh, with the plaintiffs, um, that all that was left was a bare facial challenge and the affidavits that those uh, plaintiffs in that case had submitted were inadequate.
1: The problem with Summers, if I remember it correctly, was you had an organization, but they they didn't have identified members to show the members standing, right?
5: I believe that's correct. I think they were relying on sort of a statistical probability that one of so them... here.
1: Members- here, um, no, I just put my cards on the table. I thought the Hartman affidavit was good enough, so... A, it seems like that gets them over the summer's problem, and B, why why isn't that good enough?
5: So I believe the Hartman affidavit concerns the Rosemont copper mine project. And at the time of that affidavit in uh, 2017, that was the summer judgment briefing that year, the project um, deposited waste onto what uh, what plaintiffs contended were invalid mining claims. It, it didn't concern mill site claims at all. Plaintiff's allegation about Rosemont, that project that's at issue in that declaration, is that since the Ninth Circuit's decision, uh, holding the, the authorization for that uh, mining of that project invalid in 2022, the mining companies have have switched their plan to deposit mine tailings on mill sites that they now claim but that wasn't the case at the time of the summer judgment briefing so those changed facts might um you know support some future declaration if if they could connect the dots sufficiently. but uh respectfully the facts have changed since that um since that declaration and i'd briefly point to um the declarations concerning another project that the, the only other project that they invoke, uh, the Mount Emmons mine, uh, that has not been the subject of any authorization by the agencies, um, since the summary judgment briefing. And it's, it's not clear that there's any imminent harm, uh, coming to plaintiffs and particularly as a result of any, um, anything related to the regulation they're challenging about mill sites. So moving to um, the discussion of, of the merits a bit, you know, on, um, and I think I did address the, the logical outgrowth argument briefly um, related to the comments. So I'll, I'll just focus right now on the mining law question. Um, it, it's our submission that the plaintiff's reading of the statute is not compelled by the statute's text or its history. And so uh, therefore it's, uh, their interpretation is at best um, one of a number of reasonable interpretations if you could you know give it giving them the benefit of the doubt that's reasonable um, and, and so it's not it's nothing that's compelled under um, under the precedent to be uh, substituted for the agency's judgment here they point primarily suppose, to su- suppose um,
1: before we decide this case the supreme court were to overrule chevron and and tell us to just decide what we think is the best reading of the statute. What's your position about the best reading of this statute?
5: We've made uh, text-based arguments here, uh, and the court can decide under under step one in our favor. But we're we're advocating Well, this is uh, not step one,
1: right? Right, just uh, lack of ambiguity. I'm just saying, what what is the best reading?
5: So we don't have. A, I mean, the 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 agencies do not have a position on what the better reading of the statute is. They've, um, you know, the, if they were writing on a blank slate, um, you know, they they might do things differently. But um, you know, their view is that this is a, a regulation that has sufficient ambiguity to allow mm. them to interpret it.
1: You want to be able to defend it if the agency flip-flops. That's the best you're going to tell us. Either, either reading is okay.
5: The, that's, that's a fair observation. I mean, the agency interested in preserving its discretion. As as you know, tell me, tell me
1: why your tell tell us why yours is as, as good as you think it is, whether it's unambiguously compelled the best reading or a reasonable reading.
5: So the statute does not expressly limit the number of mill sites that a claimant can obtain. By contrast, it limits the size of the mill sites. Likewise, for mining claims, both for load claims in section 23 and for plastic claims in section 35, the size of those claims is limited, but not the number.
1: Why would you limit, why why would, why might a Rational Congress want to limit the size, but not the number. If it's just a matter of they can get as much as they want, but you know, if they want, they want a hundred acres, they have to file 20 claims rather than just one. What's the sense of that?
5: So the, the best, the best, um, support for that, that I can find in the text is the, limitation for the user occupancy, and that that is a meaningful limit, although it's not a numeric limit on the the mill site claims. So for each five-acre parcel, the claimant has to make, in in its patent application, just to put context here, this is related to when somebody is submitting a patent application for actual ownership of the mill sites, um, they'd have to provide sufficient evidence demonstrating that they're used or occupied for mining or milling purposes. Um, why so have a five-acre limit? Why can't
0: it be just as much as they want to use for mining or milling purposes? Why have a five-acre limit?
5: Well, I th- that just shows that they have to demonstrate on a five-acre by five-acre basis that each of those why
0: Why would you have that if it's just as long as you're going to use it for mining or milling purposes?
5: Well, I th- I I can't um. I don't know. I mean, I I don't think we have to uh, divine an actual purpose that the Congress in 1872 had in mind. Um, But I, I, you know, from what I do, do you think that
0: Congress in 1872 intended that there could be unlimited land use for mill sites?
5: Unlimited land use. I mean, it didn't cap the acreage, but I think they did intend. I mean, from the text, there is a meaningful requirement that there's actual use or occupancy so it's not as if they can um i'm just you know, asking do you do you think that the
0: congress in 1872 intended that you could have multiple mill sites as many as you want as long as you're using them for milling and mining
5: purposes yes i do believe that's the case and i think one what's, purpose- your, what's
0: your evidence for that
5: That that was their intention well, if you look at the statutory history, the 1866 load law um, did, and this is not related to mill sites, but it's related to load mining claims, it did include a numeric limit on load mining claims that could be subject to a patent, and that statute was repealed. No, I understand that. I'm just trying to understand why you think that the
0: 1872 Congress intended to allow unlimited numbers of mill sites.
5: Well, I don't think there's unequivocal in, intent. Evidence either way. I mean, that's that's our argument for why it's ambiguous. But the best argument well, that I can, I,
0: I think structurally, though, it, it seems that as we've discussed, I think there is some textual reading you could read such to indicate they meant all of the mill site land is limited to five acres. They've linked the mining, the mill sites to a mining claim. The claim is limited in size. They've got this five acre limit for the mill site. Um, It would be odd that there's a limit on size for the mining claim, but no limit on the amount of land you could use for mill sites. So just structurally, it seems to to weigh in favor of the other reading. You've got contemporaneous interpretations, the J.B. Hagen case and the Heckler Consolidated Mining, were as contemporaneous as we have, to suggest there is a five-acre limit. Um, So, and that's just from back then. Then we have Congress, to the extent we want to look at what they think. Um, in more modern times, but they amended the statute to deal with placer claims. They stated that their understanding was the statute as it originally was, was was five acres per mining claim. Then after the 1997 opinion came out, which took the position that Earthworks is advocating, um, Congress didn't reject that or say that was wrong. They just put it off. Right, so there just seems to be a lot of evidence on the side of the, of the scale weighing in favor of the, the interpretation, the five acres per mining claim interpretation. Like in my mind, it's really just, is it unambiguously so or not? But it just seems there's a lot of evidence on the other side. And on your side of the scale, you're saying, well, this is the way the Bureau of Land Management has been doing it. But just because they've been doing it that way doesn't mean it was a correct interpretation of the statute. So, and then there's all these expert entities, too. They're all cited in the 1997 opinion. They all assumed it was a five-acre per limit, um, you know, per, per mining claim limit. And then there's this, you know, Public Land Law Review Commission, the Office of Technology Assessment Review. It just everybody seemed to believe, or many sources seem to believe, that legally speaking, it's supposed to be this five-acre limit. And what you're really relying on is just agency practice, which doesn't really speak to whether it's the correct interpretation of the statute. In my mind, it's just whether this is unambiguous or not.
5: A few points. um, Well, our contention is that it is ambiguous. But a few points in response to the the various evidence that you're talking about, um, you know, I I think the best analysis of all of this is the 2003 Service opinion. um, And I I think it it treats this in detail. um, But, you know, this is not an issue that would have come to the fore of um, the General Land Office, which is BLM's predecessor's attention in the early years, except when someone was applying for a patent. Um, This kind of gets back to our standing argument, which is that this this statute concerns patenting, concerns locating and staking claims and patenting it for property rights. So it's not going to be that um miners who stake claims are going at, at that historical time were going to the general land office to record those claims they were recording them under the um or staking them under the the laws and regulations of local mining districts and to the extent states regulated them under those laws and regulations but they weren't going to the general land office to um where where there was there was a need to resolve that issues which may explain the uh, the absence from the historical record of a resolution of the dispute early on, but I would I would also point the court to but the. But not you think it's that point,
1: that,
5: I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just on, um, on that point,
1: the nuts and bolts of how this works. It seems pretty clear that with regard to mining, with regard to mo- the mining sites, the statute contemplates claiming and patenting. And companies often can claim and extract the minerals with, without getting any patent, correct? Yes. Okay. Does, does that same division apply with respect to mill sites? Because I, I did notice this odd feature of section 42, which is on its face, it seems to be just about patenting the mill site claim. It sort of seems to assume that there's the um, antecedent practice of the informal claiming, which is self-executing, and you can claim the site, you don't have to go to the government. Is that how it actually worked with respect to the mill sites as well?
5: That's my understanding. Uh, I mean, I can. I, I don't have another statute to point to that has requirements for locating and staking claims for mill sites. Right. right. There, there's a statute, section 28, that if, it concerns mining claims, um, and it references regulations of local mining districts. And that was really the way that this evolved was that um, in the West there were local mining districts that sort of governed the uh, the miners themselves, and so it's a, largely a self-regulated industry. In its early years, and Congress adopted that framework in deferring to those local regulations and later state regulations of how to state those claims. So there's not a um, federal statute. Okay, with those
1: okay. thanks. I'm sorry, Judge Pan. I cut you. Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to note you were saying that maybe it didn't come up because you know when people came in to, I guess, try to patent their <laughs> mill sites. Um, but there's that Hecla case where they happened to, to want to, um, claim two mill sites, but they were 4.5 acres and 0. 0.5 acres, like making sure that they didn't exceed the five acre limit, which one could infer means that everybody understood you can do over five acres.
5: I understand that's one reading of it. I mean, because it wasn't over five acres, the issue wasn't Necessarily, necessarily to the decision, but a, a counter example would be the the um, Gold, Gould and Curry mining claims, also known as the Comstock load, that's discussed in our uh, our red brief at page 44 and in the 2003 solicitor's opinion, the joint appendix 756. There, the acreage of mill sites far exceeded the length of the load claims. If you look at uh, the ratios, so. Uh, you know, it's it's not it's not clear from the historical record. I'm sorry, was so
0: that upheld by a court somehow or
5: why is that relevant? No, it's just a um it's it's not to my I apologize, I don't know all, all the details, but it's it's not as part of a court decision, but it is part of the historical record that is um part of the basis for the the decision makers' adoption of the rule. So um
0: but does that just support the notion that it has been the practice of the BLM to approve these things, even if they exceeded the five acre limit? I mean,
5: that may be. This was from, this was a contemporaneous example from around the time of the um, mining laws enactment in the 1870s. So it would have been BLM's predecessor, but uh, I, I mean, I take your point that there's not a judicial decision that definitively resolves this. Um, I sort of, um, regarding the another argument that my friend on the other side presents, he relies heavily on this narrowing canon of construction for land grants. Uh, and to the, you know, I, I want to just briefly point out that this is uh, countered by the 2003 opinion at page 752 of the joint appendix, it's page 13 of the opinion, um, a citation to the Supreme Court's decision in Leo Cheap. It involved a, a railroad statute, a Union Pacific Act, that was um, that, that canon that he's talking about of narrowing was not applied to. And the mining law better resembles the statute in that case because it, it was held that statutes that are not outright grants like this mining law, but rather provide a framework for someone to obtain a benefit by investing time and, and work and resources. Um that that narrowing canon doesn't apply to those types of statutes. And uh, the solicitor's opinion in 2003 distinguished that narrowing canon on that basis. I see I'm well over my time. I'm happy to continue um, addressing the court's questions.
1: Judge Pan, anything else?
5: No, thank you. Judge Ginsburg? No,
1: no, thank you. Okay, uh, we understand your position, and, and thank you for your argument. Next
4: up is the intervener, uh, Ms. Dawson. Yes. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Elizabeth Dawson appearing on behalf of the Mining Intervener Appellees. The Mining Law of 1872, or as it was originally titled, an act to promote the development of mining resources of the United States, has one paramount objective, to make federal public land free and open for exploration and recovery of the nation's mineral resources. That objective is as important today with the nation on the precipice of another technological revolution as it was in 1872. Now, we agree with the United States that the 2003 mill site rule faithfully effectuates the mining law. However, we submit that the mining law is not ambiguous, but rather that by looking at those traditional tools of statutory construction, text, context, purpose, and history, the court can and should readily determine that the mining Law's mill site provision does not restrict the number of five-acre mill site claimants may locate, as long as they are reasonably necessary to effectively exercise the statutory right to mine. And to that point, I would like to briefly respond, to, uh, Judge Pan, to your question about the use of the word such. Because I think it's also important that the statute includes the word location. That word location is repeated both in the load claim and the placer claim statutory language. So whereas there is a acreage limit in all three cases, load, placer, and mill site, there is not a location restriction. And this makes sense that Congress wanted to encourage the development of mineral resources and prescribed a specific acreage as a default, but did not limit the number of locations that may be staked, as long as they comply with the other rules, which are are restrictions on the staking of mill sites. As Judge Cassius, you said, must be non contiguous to the Vayner Load. They must be non mineral in character. They must be used or occupied for mining and milling purposes. And the 2003 mill site rule imposes a further condition, which is that there be no more land than is reasonably necessary for compact mining operations. So it is not the case that there would be unfettered use of federal land for milling. So it, in your view, what's the purpose of the five acre
0: wording in the statute?
4: I think it's important to look at the 5-acre in contrast with the 20-acre default for mining claims. So the mining uh, law, understandably, is focused on mineralized land. And so mineralized land can be staked 20 acres at a time. For non-mineralized land, we agree with uh, our opponents that there is there are other uses that such land can be put to. So it makes sense that there would be a smaller default acreage for the mill site. But that was not to say that there could be only one mill site. Per mining claim. And I think and the what, further, so, but, oh, I'm sorry. What,
1: what work is that limit doing? Sorry, I, I didn't hear an answer.
4: Oh, I'm sorry. It's that the, uh, it's because it has to be non mineralized land, it makes sense right. that that is a, is a smaller default because that land could be put to other uses and Congress wanted to put the burden on claimants to show that it was being used or occupied for mining or milling purposes.
0: But if, okay. if the purpose is for the mill site land to be smaller than the mining claim, your interpretation allows the mill site land to dwarf the mining claim. You can have as many mill sites as you want. You can have infinity mill site land.
4: Well, Your Honor, I do believe that the non-mineralization requirement, user occupancy, and non-contiguous do impose important restrictions on the amount of land that they can claim as a mill site. They can still dwarf the mining claim that is possible but that is what is necessary to engage in the in the mining as approved by the interior department with all of the said, other restrictions
0: but you said the default reflects a desire that the mill site be smaller than the mining claim but no, you're just that just that
4: the i'm sorry just that the claimants have to prove 5 acres at a time that they really need that land not that it be limited to 5 acres in total
0: I'm sorry, I thought when Judge Cassis asked you what work is the five acres doing, you said the default is it should be smaller than the mining claim, one quarter of the mining claim.
4: Correct. The the mining claim is default 20 acres and the mill site claim is default five acres. There is no limit on the number of that.
0: But how is that default consistent with your general view that the mill site can be infinity and the mining claim is always limited to 20
4: your Honor, I don't maintain that the mill site could be infinity because of these other restrictions that there well, be non. Right, but I, I don't think that it's a a very big restriction to say you have to use this for mining
0: purposes. It can be a very large number. This ratio could be a hundred to one mill site to mine claim. It could be a thousand to one as long as you're using it for for milling and mining purposes.
4: We do believe that that is the correct reading of the statutory text, that it does not limit the number of mill site locations that may be located. No,
0: I understand it just seems to be inconsistent with your explanation for why there's a five-acre limit to begin with.
4: I don't believe it's inconsistent, Your Honor, because of this requirement of mineralized land for mining claims versus non-mineralized land, which, again, can be put to other uses. So the burden is on the claimant to show that each five acres is necessary. Now, I think there's, it's also, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm me, over my time. But, Council,
3: in, in 1872, if there was no occasion for uh, mill sites to be multiplied and to extend over large tracts of uh, large acreage, then what um, not it likely that the Congress just never contemplated that these be multiplied to the hundreds or thousands?
4: Your Honor, it's possible that Congress did not contemplate such a large area as eventually was needed. But as Mr. Toth well, uh, I just, pointed out,
3: this is this is a point that I think supports you. Congress didn't anticipate that but they didn't put a limit on it. They just had no reason to think there should be a limit.
4: I think that's correct, Your Honor. The whole purpose of the mining law was to promote the use of federal public land to obtain mineral resources. And it was the case back then that there were large loads and there were large operations to recover those resources. Whether or not the intent was for a specific number is immaterial because the language of the statute simply does not restrict mill site claimants to one five-acre mill site.
0: There are no other...
4: Questions? I can Judge conclude. Pan. Judge Pena, anything no. else? Judge no. Ginsburg,
1: no, thank you. you. You want a sentence or two, or we understand Sorry. your position.
4: I'll conclude. Thank you. Um, so, appellant's aim in pursuing this case is plain. They seek to prevent mining claims from being mined, but this is an obstructionist reading of the mining law that eviscerates Congress's intent okay. in passing it, revealing the fallacy of the argument. As such, we believe appellant's appeal should be denied and the district court's judgment affirmed. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, Mr. Flynn, we'll give you two minutes.
2: Okay, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, First on standing, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, First on standing, uh, the Melton Declaration for the mine outside of Crested Butte was filed when uh, there were mill sites proposed, they're still proposed at that mine, and she specifically linked the lack of agency discretion over that mine based on the 2003 mill site rule and so they said we didn't raise mill sites in any of our declarations uh the melton declaration flat out says that the hartman is later but the melton declaration is is specifically on point um you know the uh the industry's argument at the end that we're making some policy argument no we're making an argument on the language in 1872 and the congressional intent um also the presumption now uh the department of justice uh referenced the leo Sheep case if you go to that decision. Uh, it's 99th Supreme Court at page 1411. It says the presumption in favor of limiting, uh, the grant, quote, when the act operates as is meant manifestly clearly the intention of Congress. I think uh, the, the other two uh, attorneys on the other side basically said, well, this is ambiguous, uh, and we have to, uh, defer to she- under Chevron step two. But if they say it's ambiguous, uh, then it's not clear. We think it's clear that they limited the uh, amount of time. And uh, so therefore, you have to apply that presumption. And and lastly, uh, we didn't hear any new evidence. I think Judge Pan talked about this. We've got a few decades of field offices in Nevada and Idaho saying you get as much as you need, as much as you want, and you do. That's not in the law. I think we history matters here, Your Honors. And I think we have to look at the uh, going to Judge Ginsburg said Congress did not contemplate doing this. The agency just can't manufacture a congressional intent that did not exist in 1872. And we think based on the law, that's, uh, we respectfully, uh, ask the court to, uh, reverse the district court decision and at minimum do a rulemaking complies with APA and NEPA and of course with instructions on the proper interpretation of 1872 as if this was the Supreme Court in 1872. So, uh, thank you for the, uh, for the extra you time counsel. here, Your Honor, uh, very much.
1: Judge Pan, anything else? No. Judge Ginsburg? Oh, no, thank you. Okay, uh, thanks, Mr. Flynn. The case is submitted.